Dziękuję. Good evening and welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. I'm Maggie Williams. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics here at Harvard University. The subject of tonight's discussion is taking action on the Syrian refugee crisis. Our moderator today is Marco Werman. Mr. Werman is a reporter and senior host of Public Radio, Public Radio International's program, The World. He is known for his commitment to finding compelling ways to bring international news to American listeners. He is a storyteller of the first order, dedicated to shining a bright light on the little known stories of people from around the world. Warman's journalism career was itself something of a global whirlwind. He began as a 16-year-old copy boy at the Raleigh News and Observer in North Carolina, Following service as a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo, West Africa, he landed his first radio job in neighboring Burkina Faso, freelancing for the BBC's World Service. Then there was London, where he produced the BBC program Network Africa. Next, he moved to the Adirondack Mountains in New York, where he started a public radio station and hosted news and public affairs programs for four years. Before, this was just before he moved to Rome, Italy, as a correspondent for Monitor Radio. There in 1995, he was hired to help create the world, where he began producing its global hit segment. This segment was aimed at understanding the news through music and musicians. Mr. Worman also hosts and reports for the PBS series Soundtrack, Music Without Borders, which he co-created. He has received numerous journalism and broadcasting awards, including a 2007 Emmy for his PBS frontline story, Libya Out of the Shadows. I am pleased to present Marco Werman, our moderator for tonight. Hi, how are you doing? Wow, oh, went by so fast. Um, I'm Marco Werman, host of The World from PRI and the BBC World Service, produced right here at WGBH in Boston, heard on about uh, over 300 stations across the US. Um, I, I got to say, I'm kind of torn tonight uh, because I've signed up to moderate this panel, but I also gathered that we're competing against uh, the winners of the 2015 Gleitzman International Activist Award, uh, an extraordinary mother and daughter from Mogadishu who I had uh, the, the great opportunity to meet today over at uh, the world, Farhun Aden and Ilwad Elman, uh, really impressive individuals uh, who show us the power of people getting involved. Um, Taking action on the Syrian refugee crisis, I'll just flag right now that uh, the conversation that we have tonight will be continuing and is going on as we speak at uh, our Facebook page. Uh, so if you want to seek that out now, later, uh, it is Facebook and find PRI's The World. Uh, we, know that we know the headlines. It's the worst refugee crisis since World War II, the number of, number of people le leaving Syria since the uprising began in 2011, going up every year, now at over four million people, Syrians spread across the globe. Uh, the past summer uh, was the worst of it, but only suggesting the desperation, hopelessness of the war there and that it might seemingly never end. We've seen thousands of people dying at sea. Those headlines continue to come in daily. We've seen the lucky children who made it across with their families, and I say lucky only because they're alive. Uh, they're drowning in tears. 
And we've seen that because they haven't eaten for days and many of them are sleeping in strange European forests. In the rain, we've seen maps showing the flow of refugees since 2011 and the flow just continues into cold weather. Uh, people will leave any way possible, north through Russia and up to the Arctic Circle to get to Norway. Just today I saw a headline saying that people from Syria are flying to Mauritania to make the uh, easier trek across the Sahara Desert. That's an extraordinary thing to say. Since last Friday, we've all been rattled by events in Paris. Syrians have also been rattled by those events, but they're also being buffeted by, for them, perhaps even greater consequences for their lives. In less than a week, these are some of the disturbing developments for Syrians who want to come to the US. More than half of American state governors have said they won't resettle Syrian refugees in their states. Other politicians have said, stop admitting Syrians altogether. Stop admitting Muslim Syrians, but allowing the Christians, some have said. Tighten the already tight betting, uh, vetting process, uh, which we found out today was supported by Congress. Uh, a suggestion to open internment camps a la World War II with the Japanese Americans. And let's not act as if everything until before last Friday was just fine. It took four years of the Syrian war and the worst summer on the Mediterranean for the U.S. to up its admission for about 2,000 Syrians since the war began to 10,000 for this fiscal year. So what we've got now is a situation where lawmakers are starting to conflate refugee and immigration policy with security policy. So now what? Regardless of any short-term actions, the current Syrian refugee crisis will continue as long as the complex and confusing civil war grinds on. About 7.6 million are internally displaced in Syria and could still flee. We've heard from politicians about how the war might end, but so far a lot of talk and very few solutions. What we've not heard a lot is representatives of Syrian civil society, especially the young Syrian men and women whose protests in 2011 led to the start of the conflict. And based on my own conversations with them, these young men and women are the ones on whom will fall the task of rebuilding the country when that day finally comes. Our show, PRI's The World, believes in the power of stories, in this case, the perspectives and stories of young people. So we brought together a panel tonight that will feature different perspectives of Syrian youth and civil society. They will share the view, their views of the conflict and how the refugee crisis stands now. While we were organizing this event, we heard from Harvard students that they want more than a good discussion tonight. They also want to know, you also want to know what actions you could take and how you can get involved. So each of our panelists are, are going to touch on those points respectively and immediately following the discussion, there will be a student-led meeting to discuss next actions. I'd like to introduce our panelists first of all, just stand up where you are and uh, uh, then we'll bring you up on stage. Fuad Faris is a Syrian activist and refugee from Aleppo in the Boston area, and he spoke with the world in 2013. Thank you. you take your oh, seat, okay. and we'll bring you back up in okay. just a moment. No worries. Joining us from Paris, Dr. Maria Alabde. Am I pronouncing Maria correctly? Yeah. Maria Alabde, Syrian activist and director of Women Now for Development, which is an NGO that focuses on empowering women in Syria. As I said, she joins us from Paris. Welcome. Dr. Kurt Rose, the founder and international director of Questscope. Questscope focuses on marginalized youth within Syria and the Zaatari refugee camp in Jordan. You're a longtime resident of the region. You know it very well. 
Douglas Johnson is the director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy here at Harvard. He was the director for the Center for Victims of Torture with over two decades of experience working with refugee populations. And finally, Zina Aga, an Iraqi-Palestinian poet, writer, and student here at Harvard. She has close family members in Syria and very tragically lost a cousin who drowned while trying to flee to Europe. The after panel discussion on next actions will feature Mohammed Al-Bardan, an activist and refugee from Damascus. He works with the Syrian Nonviolent Movement and the American Syrian Ref Relief Committee, and I had the chance to meet Mohammed yesterday. He came to the world for a wonderful interview and shared with us his thoughts. I'd like to ease us all into this discussion tonight from the brain and the heart by starting, by, by starting to, with uh, a reading from Zina Aga uh, for a spoken word performance. It's something she's written, which is a poem titled, The Sea is Big. The sea is big. I have nothing to add. It is all said. Of bodies and shores and salted tears in the salted seas and memorials in dinghies capsized and memories in homes ransacked, bombed and blasted. A deficit of humanity. Facing trouble at home, displaced and disgraced. Facing borders not of our own, misplaced and mistakes, no choice but to flee. Engraved with faded pigments of sanctity. But the sea was big and the waves were bigger. Families parting kisses still sore on our skin. Scolded with regret that they could not protect their babies from troubles. Their duties redoubled as the war inflamed our kin as the air showered flesh confetti. So we pray, but the sea is big, but God is bigger because he created this and it can eat me up and he created war and it has eaten me up and I am helpless and you are watching and I'm lonely and you are watching and I'm alone, but you, are scared. You came and divided, came to devise a map not of my making, in a world that was made more of green lines and paper-planed colonies, and we are suffering. My brother is gone, my mother is gone, my memories are gone, and the sea is big, bigger than me, and the sea is blue, bluer than me. And those who promised rubber in place of dignity are sitting beyond me. They want for nothing. As we get washed ashore, we have been gobbled, then spat out, sandy and exotic, seaside towns for seahorses and refugees. And you share our images, and you tweet our stories in 140 characters with no protagonists. And your leaders shrug as they pass us by, so we take trains to solve the mystery, to Germany or Hungary or some other colonial memory. And our neighbors have forgotten us. Their oil a film on the sea we swim. But the sea is big, and I'm small. And the sea is blue, and I'm small. And Europe is green, but I 
I'm small. I have nothing to add. It is all said of bodies and shores and salted tears in the salted sea, that sea, that sea so much bigger than me. Thank you. Uh, Zena, that was pretty incredible. Um, there was a lot in there. Um, there was the personal, there's the global. Can you um, just start us off tonight by talking about why you wrote that poem and uh, what you want people to take away from it? Um, so, Syria has been in my mind the whole time. I was there in 2011, um, and then I lost my cousin last year, but I hadn't yet articulated it in, through poetry, which is my usual medium. Um, and it wasn't until I got to, to Boston, actually, and I was on Facebook, and I saw that photo, this tiny two-year-old on the, on the shore, and I just thought, this is so much bigger than all of us, and we've really lost our humanity in the narrative. Um, so I wrote that in about 10 minutes, and then um, I didn't look at it again, and then um, this sort of started, so I... I dug it back out and looked at it, and I realized how much there was in it, but also how much was left unsaid. Um, so I didn't change it, but I always feel like with poetry, there's only so much you can articulate and so much more that's always left unwritten, really. So just given the reality of the refugee situation right now, what, what do you want people to know from that story, that, that poem? I think the danger, um, and it's, it's a common one, but we really dehumanize people, we call them migrants, we call them refugees, we don't just call them people, we don't think of them as our neighbours or our mothers or our fathers, um, and we like to think we live in this post-racial world, but we don't, and the value of a human life does depend on ethnicity and race and increasingly religion, so I think through that poem and um, through all the work that I've tried to do to really kind of immortalise Emjed as much as I can, um, is to kind of show that, that he was just one who passed away in the sea and we didn't get a body back and we didn't, no one will remember him. Um, and he was just one, he was a 26 year old engineer and he was just one. And we're talking not just tens, not just hundreds, not just thousands, but millions of people. And if millions of people are losing their identities that way, their humanity that way, then we're in pretty bad shape. So that's kind of what the message I'd kind of like to put through the poem. Dr. Alabde in Paris, um, tell us what it's been like to be a Syrian in Paris for the past week. Uh, I know there are a lot of strong historic <coughs> and cultural connections between Paris and, and Damascus. Uh, describe how you feel as a Syrian today in, in Paris and what you feel is at stake right now. Wow. Uh, first of all, I say how to feel as a human in Paris today. You feel scared. You feel very scared. and. As a refugee, you feel like there is no area is safe all around the world. You, even you felt Syria because it's not safe, but here you are, you are not safe either. But the most horrible thing is that people are blaming you. The first victim of all what happened in Syria, you are blamed now for what happening. So I think it's lots how, of... 
How have you felt that, that, that blame? Have people you can feel it on the media with the story of the Syrian passport and all the linked with Syria and even the statement of ISIS with because you bombed Syria, we are coming back. And the, the question is between, uh, between ISIS and Western forces because both of them don't want Syrian. <laughs> ISIS don't want Syrian to, to, to go to, to Europe. And uh, Europe also don't want them to to come. So it is like both of them want the same thing. Fuad Faris, um, tell us your story. And what do you think, since you've been working as an activist in this country, what don't people understand about refugees, and specifically the Syrian refugee population? OK, first, uh, my name is Fuad. I was born and raised in Syria till the age of 18, and that's a Pretty like 80% of my life, 90% of my life. Uh, I had to come here after what happened. I was in dental school, and it's not that easy to just leave everything and leave. You're not. It's not by choice. It's none of the refugees that, as you mentioned, Syrian refugees, any refugee, or asylee, or any human would leave what they have and go in an adventure and don't know where they gonna end up and see on the seashore, or they might get accepted, or they might come over here, like happened to the Syrian family, and governor said, no, you, you're not gonna give anything for that. Uh, what, what people mostly don't understand about like the refugee situation is that we're not, like, we're, we didn't choose that. We were forced to leave. And as much as the world hate ISIS, we hate them too. Since the beginning of ISIS, we, I remember those incidents where they called a young kid who was selling, uh, like selling, like you can say, snacks to earn a living, and it's the prayer time, and he was not praying, so they killed him. And you think that incident, like three years ago, would make people love them or want them? No, they don't have any ground in Syria. Like Syrians, people don't like him as much as you or anyone in this room don't like him. Uh, and there's two statements that, about refugees that are totally wrong. The first one is that uh, refugees, like you're, you're, you're saying, I don't want to accept refugees in this country, like governor said. France, Francois Hollande, the president of France, said he will still accept refugees after Paris attack. So why, why governors are saying no? And to these governors, if you're not 100% Native American, one of your grandparents at some point came to this country, whether on a ship, on a plane. They made it to this country, and they are, if you're going to call us refugees, then they are refugees too. They left their homes and came here. So you can't say, what if those Native Americans said no? You'd be somewhere, Europe, Africa, uh, Asia, anywhere. The second statement is people are blaming Syrian refugees for the Paris attack. Uh, Syrian people are running from this violence. I'm one of the people who ran away from these strikes, from these bombs, from waking up. Your bed was shaking. You, you don't hear the noise first. You, hear, you feel the shake, then you hear the noise of the explosion. So people are running away. Why would they bring it with them? That's all I got to say. You, you had an interesting uh, exchange in your own office uh, uh, when the attacks happened last Friday. Um, that kind of oh, shed uh, a little yeah, light on your at, own at work. kind of status uh, during, as a like, uh, It was like at work 
when when the Paris attack went on, like went viral on Facebook and like people heard of it, I had a person coming to me asking me, "Are all Syrians like you?" And I was I just read the like if I if I read that what happened in Paris that just five minutes before that I wouldn't know what what does it mean, and instantly I didn't think about Paris first. I just thought I was like, yeah, because people people generalize like. I have a Christian friend who's a Syrian. I remember him being asked, "Oh, you're Arab, so you should be Muslim. You're Arab. And how come you're Arab and not Muslim?" Like, just general, like generalizing on people. That's that kind of works. So when she asked me, like, "All Syrians like me," and I was like, "What do you mean?" She was like, "Friendly, like funny." I was like, "Yes." Like we love to laugh. Everyone loved to laugh. <laughs> and she was like, "Oh, then what? What's going on in Paris?" Like, I was like, "What's going? I don't know." I was like, "What's going on in my country before Paris?" Like people got so upset. Facebook. Give you this France flag on your profile for 100 people, almost over 100 people being killed. How about the millions of people who are being who are, who are being killed every day? I mean, uh, being killed for the past four years yeah. every day. Like, why are like are they because they're not European? Because we don't have Europe. We're not in Europe. We're we're not countable. I don't know. Like, it's just. It doesn't make sense that you look at some people in a different perspective than the other people. Yeah, we should recall that uh, the uh, alleged organizer of the attacks uh, was born in Belgium. Uh, was so he, even wherever he was born. It, now, are you going to blame the whole Belgium? Right. Are you going to every Belgium person for this attack? You are not. Um, Douglas Johnson, uh, the the kind of notion of millions of Syrians fleeing Syria has kind of been pinned down to the fact that there's a, a raging conflict there and people want to get away with their lives and the safety of their families' lives. Uh, why do you think there are so many refugees fleeing Syria? Is it because of the war? Well, certainly that's approximate cause. Um, the fear um, and the instability that comes from it and, and people flee. Like Fuad, I've never met a refugee who wanted to leave and didn't have their primary goal as a refugee to go home. But I, I think that uh, although the press is focused on the violence as the, as the cause, I think the cause is the life of the refugee uh, and the life of the refugee in the Middle East. Uh, it is a life uh, of despair, of forced idleness. Uh, although only 10% of the Syrian uh, refugees are in camps, uh, and many of them are integrated into the cities, uh, they are still not allowed to work. They're not allowed to go to school, and they're not allowed to get health care. Um, and uh, and the, uh, the forced idleness um, is extraordinary. Uh, it's, it really leads to a great deal of despair. There is, a, there is a figure that circulates through the internet that says that the average time period for being in a refugee camp is 17 years. It's quite debatable uh, whether or not that's the right term. But the point is, that's, that's the figure you see everywhere. Everyone uses that figure. Every Syrian who's on the pipeline uh, and the trek to Europe has seen that figure. And they're saying, 17 years of living under plastic, of not being allowed to go to school, of not uh, of not being engaged in the world and in my life uh, is, um, is that's where the desperation is. And I think that that siphon uh, of people going from the Middle East into Europe uh, is, is caused by the fact that we continue to think of refugees and refugee camps as warehouses 
that should be minimally serviced uh, with a certain amount of calories available per day when there are, in fact, enormous opportunities for investment uh, in education, in training, uh, in helping people prepare to reshape their countries when they return. So we, I, I, I believe the fundamental problem is uh, the way we conceptualize refugees um, and the despair we offer versus the hope for the future. So what's causing uh, the re refugees uh, to go to Europe? It's hope, because the hope isn't where they are. And the hope uh, sounds like is not in the refugee camps either. No, no, if you've ever been in one, uh, they're not, largely not places of hope, although uh, organizations like, uh, like Kurtz provide a great deal of hope on the, on the scale of uh, the numbers of people there and what small NGOs can do, uh, it's uh, phenomenally inadequate. Um, Dr. Rose, take us inside those camps you work in and what you see as the potential. I mean, given that maybe 10% uh, of refugees are in camps, you said, uh, Douglas. I mean, uh, that doesn't sound like a lot, but is there potential there for people to kind of think about their country, rebuilding a nation? Because it's really hard to imagine people who've made it all the way to Europe and then returning to rebuild. Well, the, one of the two camps in Jordan, and there are only two camps of any size, is Zaatari camp with 85,000 people. Um, it's a remarkable space because it's only two square kilometers. And there is no police force, no streets, no electricity, no water. Everything is a no. And yet people have organized themselves and they dig with their own hands this, the channels for their sanitation. Um, I don't, I can't imagine putting 85,000 Americans in a place without at least one policeman, right? You know? So the first thing that I notice about Zatari after living in the Middle East since 1980 is what it is not. It is not a place where uh, people are uh, taken advantage of. Now, of course, some of that happens, right? But some of that happens here in Boston. So where you find these people, you find that they brought with them their mores and their social practices and their respect. And they're a bit stunned as to why other people don't share that respect. Um, if we move from the 85,000 into our space in the camp, which accommodates anywhere from 500 to 3,000 people in a week, um, many of the first wave of people who came to that camp were from Dara, where the thing started. And most of those people, uh, most of the camp is made up of people from the south of Syria. Um, and mo almost all of those people are highly educated. So one of the marks of refugeeism, if there's such a word, in the 21st century, is you were headed towards a PhD. This is a, you know, we don't think about that in America. Yeah. Refugees should have tattered clothes and just rolled in out of the bush, and you know, they don't really speak any language very well. That's not the case. Maybe it never was. So you have this highly educated group of young people who were headed towards a future. Some of them had mortgages. All of them had cars that they were making payments on. They are just like us. Just like us. They yeah. are just like us. 
The only difference is they have one shirt on their back that they ran away with, and I have five or six in my closet. But we're just like each other. The, um, the little story that I'll tell, and then we have a, a little clip to show. Early on, in working with young disadvantaged youth, which for us ranges from 15 to 30 in the Middle East, the critical thing is to establish a relationship so that they, you know, if you've got a relationship with somebody, you can stand a lot of the stresses of life. You're not alone. And you get a, the, you can build, rebuild this network of respect. You don't actually build respect, it's there, but you build the network of respect and dignity. And if you have refugees with remarkable capacity, do you need them as leaders? In general, the, the UN system and the refugee system does not need you as leaders. They need you as complacent people who will be happy for your blanket. So we decided to actually need Syrians as leaders and need Syrians to create a, if you'll let me use this word here in Boston, a Ponzi setup, <laughs> but a positive one where you have three or 4,000 young people who need to be mentored you have three or four, five hundred people who know how to mentor, and you have 40 or 50 what we call mentor coordinators, one of whom you'll meet in just a minute. So suddenly you've given, as the husband of the woman who will speak to you tonight said, when we came here, we were hopeless. We were going to stay for two days, and it became two weeks, and then it became two months, and now it's two years or more. He said, by allowing us to have something to do with our hands, particularly to help other younger Syrians, that action of our hands put hope in our hearts. So yes, it's a small bunch, but everything starts small. And they are a sign. They are an indication that things don't have to be as we thought they were. And that's an extremely valuable thing. So we can, we can tee up this uh, video just to hear from uh, a woman named Nadine who was going to be a geographer and her husband is an aviation engineer. It's very important uh, to the people to listen to our stories because you are um, in the same our age and you have, like us, you have, uh, we, we are together, shares the same dreams. I want to say, Please stand with us, beside us, and try to understand the full story. Thank you. It sounds like once you have that Ponzi scheme, as you said, there's skin in the game. That, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Maria Alabde uh, in Paris, you've got a woman's center in one of the besieged areas of Damascus. Um, Talk about your work and how you see the, the flow of refugees out of Syria affecting civil society back home. Mm -hmm. So we are, uh, we, are work, we are working with Syrian women, the most vulnerable ones, and uh, especially inside Syria and also in camps in Lebanon. So I will talk about both uh, situations. So in besieged area, if uh, I don't know, you know a little about it. There is one million, around one million Syrians who are living in besieged area without water, without electricity, without medicine, without anything, and they are facing a daily bombing. Uh, 
So those people are trying to, to make life, to, to do what they can. And what we are doing there is opening a women's center to support those women, to protect them, to empower them, and to make them able to participate in social and political life, even uh, under those situations. Just to give you an example, we were talking with a group of women this morning about, uh, they wrote a statement, and I thought the statement about was about a ceasefire, because in, we have a talk about uh, uh, a ceasefire in, between two areas in Syria, one of the Ghouta and the regime area. And the woman's statement was about education, support education of our child in besieged area. And I was like, think, you know, and do you have any specific women needs? As I said, no, we just need education. And I say, but there is no medicine. There is no anesthesia for, for, uh, for any uh, medical operation. There is no food. There is no, and say, we just need education. So, uh, you know, women and civil society all over Syria are, are, are the people who are really uh, continue to struggle for all the uh, revolutions, uh, principles of dignity and liberty, and they are doing to, they are trying to do whatever they want. So our role is to support the women who are doing this. We also work in camps in uh, in uh, <clears throat> in Lebanon, and we also have worked with wonderful women who are uh, coming to to the center because they want to continue their education. Because in I will talk in Lebanon specifically, you don't have the right to be registered in university when you are Syrian. You don't have a work uh, permission. You don't have a right to to register uh, your marriage. You don't you don't have the right to register, uh, um, uh, to have a birth register, registration, sorry. So all this situation, and after five years of waiting for a solution in Syria, it is why people now are trying to fly. So it is, you know, you, you need a better future for your children. So, but lots of people, especially women, want to stay, want to stay sometimes because they are obliged, because they cannot face all the risk uh, of the trip because they have to they have they have to to take attention of the children of the elderly so those women are staying there trying to 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 have work to feed the children trying to have education because they want to be a part of the new syria they want to participate and even in Lebanon last year, a group of women contacted us because they want to, to prepare for a gathering. The gathering was about, uh, we need peace. The, and they have pancards saying, uh, peace can also emerge from people's minds and never in international conferences. So those women, you know, they are very smart and sometimes they are smart, smarter than lots of politicians. So, yes, 
that's what we are doing with uh, those women by offering different kind of training or psychosocial support for trauma. And I, I'm really glad you gave us that last part because I was about to ask you why are these women, given all their struggles, why are they not fleeing? But it sounds like there is some kernel of hope there that keeps yes. them kind of. Yes, I know. Even my colleague inside Syria, they always say, "We'll never. We start a revolution of dignity, and we will continue to the end." And you know, they have a lot of examples. You know, even it's not about just activism; it's also the hope of of uh, of normal people. We have a woman who is coming to to our center in besieged area. She is 60 years, and she is now trying to 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 learn to write. To, to read and write. We have also a mother who is coming to learn English because her, uh, she lost her, uh, her son who want to learn English. So she is doing that for them, for her, sorry. <coughs> so we have a civil society. We have wonderful people who are trying to do something, but sometimes it's just impossible and they are trying to fight. We've managed to get through uh, one round of questions, and given the time, I think we should open up to uh, Q&A from the audience. Uh, there are two microphones, one here, one here on the floor. There are also two microphones up on the mezzanine on the left and the right. So uh, if you have questions, please line up to and behind the microphone closest to you. Uh, keep your questions brief, and please, as we like to say, end on a question mark. Uh, also, the conversation, as I said earlier, continues at uh, our Facebook page, uh, PRI.org. Uh, rather, PRI is the world uh, at Facebook. Over here, please. Hi, thank you. Um, I spent this last summer uh, working with urban refugees in southern Turkey, and one of the important things that <clears throat> we came across as an agency was um, there were a lot of really great ideas coming from Syrians who wanted to implement programs and we were trying to help enable those programs. But the major stumbling block was the Turkish government and getting a lot of, having a lot of things that need to be um, uh, approved by the ministries that manage, uh, you know, working with refugees. And so my question is, okay, so, so advocacy is very important and that's something that I think agencies can do, but what are the steps that are being taken maybe in Jordan um, in the United States um, that are, are steps towards stronger advocacy to, to help implement programs for uh, refugees and affected populations. Thank um, Advocacy or implementation? Advocacy. Um, if advocacy is having a lot of words around a topic, there's a lot of advocacy, okay? Um, Sometimes agencies are not sure who they are advocating for. Um, and sometimes they advocate for their own programs rather than advocate for. Um, I think the real, as you said in your first sentence, the real issue is, is implementation going to be allowed? Okay, because uh, the, um, the Arab world, of course, we have governments, we have rules, we have laws, we, and these things haven't been suspended. Uh, the same for the considering Turkey as part of the Arab world, although they don't speak Arabic. Um, the, the old systems of control uh, need to, there needs to be advocacy for these systems to be opened up, okay? Um, that would, 
this could go on for quite some time, but you put your finger on the on a very important thing. Turkey is a very interesting situation because, as you know, having worked there, Turkey recognizes refugees only coming from the Balkan regions of Europe. Uh, they don't recognize refugees coming from anywhere else because they they adopted the law back after World War uh, World War Two that's made the situation of refugees very precarious and has from Iran and many other places. There is pushback within Turkey itself uh, of people trying to get Turkey to sign the overall refugee agreements. I think in any kind of advocacy, you have to recognize the importance uh, of building alliances. Uh, that's sometimes difficult for outside agencies to do, but it still has to be done. And in particular, there's a very vibrant uh, civil society in Turkey. Uh, my first step would be to try and get Turkish activists and Syrian activists together uh, to push and, um, and to push Europe and other governments to get Turkey to align itself with the international agreements. But alliances are essential, finding um, common ground uh, that people are willing to work on together, and of course, having a vision of the future that people are willing to dedicate their lives uh, to. So congratulations on being there. Um, and I know it was a great experience. Turkey is wonderful. Uh, let's go to a question over here on this microphone first. Sorry. Hi, my name is Ignacio. I'm a student at the college. Um, this is a question for anyone on the panel. After the attacks in Paris, there seems to be a shift in focus from removing President al-Assad from power to targeting ISIS strongholds or other parts of ISIS in the region. Do you think this is the right move, shifting focus from removing President al-Assad and then instead targeting ISIS? Uh, I'll answer your question. Uh, we, we should know that ISIS was indirectly created by Assad. Assad called the, the protesters since the first day terrorists. There was no weapons. There, the only weapon we used was pens and we were called terrorists. That was just a first step to initiate war on them, to, to make it legal for him to bomb every area that has protesters saying that they're terrorists. Then year after year, he let, he let the, 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 Iraqi, the Syrian-Iraqi borders loose, and those radicals came from through these borders and started building. Um, and None of the Syrians people are welcoming them. Like they, they are, they're residing in Raqqa. Uh, none, of, none, none of the people there like them. They, they all want him out. And if you think that Assad is fighting ISIS, he's not. Uh, Assad used his air force to strike rebels in Raqqa, but not ISIS. Why? Because ISIS support his theory of protesters of revolution being a terrorist act. So the, if you got rid of ISIS, Assad will come up with something else to legalize his war against revolution. If you got rid of Assad, ISIS might end by itself or maybe you need to vanish it. And I, like, I present this like, simply with uh, saying that you have a bad tree in your garden, you want to take it off, you don't just cut the branches or the leaves, you cut it from the roots. And Assad is the root and ISIS is the branch of it. I'm just curious, what, what do you think of the narrative that uh, ISIS was created uh, in the vacuum of the Iraq war and that the United States had a lot to do with it? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not an expert with that, but 
in that area of Asia, like Eastern Asia, there's a lot of radical groups, groups and they can go through borders with no limitations because borders are not that strong. But before 2011, borders were okay and we didn't have any radical group. Like, I don't know if you, if you can name one group before 2011, radical group in Syria before 2011. There's not. After, after the revolution started, the regime has this, has this plan. The regime has been there for, since 1970, planning on this day where people don't want him to be there. And he has not just one or two, he has at least 20 plans just to stay in power over there. And right now, regime is not in power. It's just fake. It's this binary that we talk about. We, sorry, I didn't mean to go ahead. Yes, can I? Maria, please go ahead. Okay, thank you. And I will come back so, to that. Yeah, sorry. Uh, just to comment this, okay, I will, when we talk about ISIS, I completely agree with the fact that ISIS, it's a, there is a multi-factors for the raises of, uh, raising of ISIS. One of them is the Assad regime uh, relieving the, all his uh, terrorists in, in <clears throat> he had in, uh, in his uh, prison, but also all that disorder made by the invasion of Iraq, for sure. And we also have all the injustice in the region, and also the lack of solidarity, the lack of solidarity with the demand uh, for justice and dignity for the people in our, uh, in our region. So when we we, when we are focusing on ISIS, we are completely doing the, the wrong thing. So when we have to do something with uh, all these extremists, it will be fighting them with solidarity with the people who are asking for liberty and dignity and with justice. Because when the main persecutor, sorry for <laughs> French, <laughs> yes, uh, is still free and he is still able to continue in com uh, committed ma massacre, for sure you have other people who will do the same. And I, you know, I like very much the, the thought who is saying, when you look into the abyss, the abyss look back to you. And the abyss is the Syrian regime. So thank you. Let's go to question here. I'm sorry to keep you waiting. Hi, I'm Charlotte. I'm a freshman at the college, and my question is, what is the perception amongst refugees of oil-rich Middle Eastern nations' response, or lack thereof, to the crisis? Infuriating. <laughs> um, I, my mother's from Iraq, my father's from Palestine, and they went as refugees from there to Syria. So we know more than most the, the mess and the lack of solidarity between the region, uh, sorry, between the countries in the region. Um, it's it's frustrating to see these, like there's a narrative in the Middle East, um, not that prevalent, but it exists, that Europe is the end game, that the region, there's no hope in the region. And that's because of this lack of unity between countries. And honestly, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of that is traced back to the colonial legacy. If you look at how the, maps were, the map was carved, the map of the Middle East is this contrived creation by Westerners, by Europeans. Um, these ethnicities were cut up. I mean, Iraq's comprised of three regions that were put together. And so when there is this, you know, this mess that we've got now, the sectarianism, this tribalism, if you want to use that word, is it any wonder when there was never really any real nationalism that yoked it together in any meaningful sense? So when you look at the context of that, and you look at how Iraq was put together, how Syria was put together, how Lebanon was put together, how Palestine was 
taken apart. When you look at it like that, you then realize it's inevitable that there's not going to be much cohesion in the region. And international politics as such, oil politics as such, neoliberal capitalism as such, that the Gulf countries or countries that are relatively safe or secure or stable in the Middle East will not stand up and take in this influx of Syrian refugees or refugees from anywhere, really, because it's not in their interests. Yeah, I want to add a, um, an edge, an embroiderment, because what you're saying is right on. In the lifetime of a university freshman, a lot of the things that you have seen is a kind of Islam that is different than what we experienced earlier. Because Islam, especially in Syria, there was a plurality, there was an openness, you had flourishing churches, you had... So what you see today is a... It's not even... I can't... Caricature is not a strong enough term for that, but it's been pressed and fixed to be a certain direction. It's entirely reasonable to think that that was crafted and created and funded from the Gulf to just stay on safe ground here. So there's a, there's a lot of... Uh, in quicksand, there are a lot of different pieces of it moving around. If we, if, we leave it, if we leave the issue of Islam hanging, then anybody can hang any interpretation they want on it. So we can't leave it hanging. We have to say that it was uh, open, it, was, it allowed for plurality, it allowed for different viewpoints, you had massively intellectual uh, things going on. It goes even back to Andalusia and the time of Spain uh, that Europe benefited from. So you have to remember that we, we are neighbors and we, we intermarried, and here I mean culturally, not just physically, and we belong to each other. There are roots that we can find together in addition to the truth of the political stuff that you just described. I mean, you're talking about something, though, that is really calling for a complete revisitation of history and education in order for that to kind of stick, right? You want to unmold what was molded. I like your term revisit. We don't have to redo it. It's there. <laughs> we have to revisit it. You know, we don't have to take the, uh, the ISIS way of re reconstructing history that it's got to be like this. We can actually revisit the history that we know. Question once, over here from this gentleman. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Dennis Jackson, BU class of 77, hippie from the 60s, imagining a world right with no government and no religion, because <laughs> all we need is love. <laughs> I spoke at the Kennedy School in 02, 450 international developers, globalization after September 11th. Has anything changed? I said, I'm working on a paradigm shift, internet marketing where Palestinians in East will sponsor Jews to sell products in Tel Aviv. One of them said, if you ever get this going, you'll be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm a feminist economist, feminist historian, feminist psychoanalyst. I have uterine envy. Moderate woman making money will tell men into the Sinai, last man standing. Consumer goods, durable goods, Mercedes, Lexus, we're going public with a Mideast peace solution will stop this refugees. When Jews are selling Mercedes for Palestinians, on topic, two years ago, 
2013, every senator, every state rep, I had no name recognition. City council, I predicted serious potential future. Is, is, sorry, is there a, a question here? There'll I, be a question. You're, you're very entertaining. Assad, backed by Russia, CIA, backs Al-Qaeda, thousands of refugees to U.S. cities, including suicide bombers with collateral damage when they use drone missiles. The Sir, election next is there a year, question? The question is, are you aware of the conspiracy by the CIA to release refugees to affect the election next year? Uh, personally, I'm not aware of it, no. Um, and I don't know if there's... Question over here. Hi, uh, my name is Dante Tapo. Um, I'm an MPP. Can you get candidate. a little closer to the microphone? You're Always a tall a gentleman. For me. <laughs> um, Thank you. MPP one candidate here at the Kennedy School. Uh, my question is for Zena, uh, but then also open it to the floor. Um, the language of poetry, and specifically Arabic language poetry, has had a lineage of resistance going back for really as long as it's been around, but also especially in major resistance movements when it comes to Palestinians, Iraqis, and Syrians now, as well as Egyptians in Tahrir. So what, um, I guess my question is, what role uh, do you think that poetry can play uh, in sort of this contemporary bloody stalemate that's ground down as far as opening up new possibilities? Um, that's within the region. And then alternatively, what role do you think that it can play as far as agitating the consciousness of governments in London and Paris and in Washington uh, to sort of produce new ideas and a little bit of new energy? Thank you. Um, I'm really glad you asked that because what frustrates me about academia, having been in it now for my fifth year, is that we never talk about art. We never value art or creativity. Um, or originality of thought when it comes to looking at these sorts of issues. We put it simply in terms of food and water and shelter, and those things, of course, they're important, but I'm a true believer that the pen is mightier than the sword. Um, and I think you cannot have a revolution unless you have ideas, and ideas need an expression that resonate with people, and you don't resonate through people by talking policy at them, you resonate with people by using art. Um, and, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and I just, I think that the way we talk about the Middle East is so devoid of art that a little more art in the region is only gonna be a good thing. And the amount of people I've connected with through poetry has just been unprecedented because people resonate, people connect, people care. Um, and we live in this internet age, this sort of social media age, this echo chamber where videos go viral. And it's not the videos of, you know, dry political discussions, they're actually people talking about real issues in a poetic manner. Um, and like you said, the Middle East has a long history of like beautiful words. I mean, my idol is Mahmoud Darwish, and if you read his poetry, you understand the Palestinian cause more than any other history book will tell you. Um, and so I think we need to encourage this in the region. We really need to urge these sort of NGOs, these groups that do such good work to actually start thinking about poetry and art and picking up the pen again and using their education to enable that. Um, and in terms of inf affecting it in London, Paris, Washington, wherever else, I'm, I'm a product of this sort of colonial exile, um, and I write my poetry in English, and it's always, I've always found it ironic that I don't write my poetry in Arabic. When I'm ethnically Arabic, I'm from there, and yet I write all my poetry in English, but it's a curse in that sense, but it's also a blessing because I can speak to you, I can engage with people who don't come from my part of the world who don't see things the way I see them, but instead of arguing or instead of 
just constantly debating and going through the same loops. I can offer something that's a bit more nuanced and a bit more creative and a bit more human. And through that, you create this sort of empathetic bridge, as it were, um, and connect with people you would never have dreamed of, not through bludgeoning them, but just through art. Hi, my name is Hiba, and I'm a master's student at that school. Hi. Um, so, Zina, um, one verse of your poem really struck with me. Uh, it said, Europe is green. So my question is about that. Refugees, as you rightly so mentioned, have this perception that Europe is the land of hope. Mm -hmm. However, and under the light, or perhaps I should say the shadow of the recent attacks, there is a growing um, Islamophobia, there is a growing intolerance towards those coming from the outside. And it's not only in European societies, but it's also on paper. Um, the 2003 European, um, European um, Security Report mentions terror, terrorism as the first out of five threats to Europe. And within that, they say that one of the reasons is the alienation of young people living in foreign societies. The sentence after that says, this phenomenon is also part of our own society. But we just recently learned that one of the attackers was actually born in Belgium. So my question is certainly Europe's, um, uh, maybe I shouldn't generalize, but certainly the growing intolerance is unfounded, but it's so very real. So what does that mean for the refugee that's going there? Is it even right for us to push for Europe to relax its borders? Is it even right for us to be crit so critical of Europe? Are we undermining the safety and security of the refugees slash migrants going there? Yeah, great question. Um, Can I, like to I'll, that? Yeah, I'll answer that. Um, first of all, I don't think, just to answer the last part of your question, I don't really think it's up to Europe to decide by it's closing its borders to defend the migrants against this barbaric European society. Um, not that it ever would have that rhetoric, but that's sort of the implicit assumption in it. Um, there is this idea that Europe is green. Um, every time I go to Baghdad, the first thing is like, oh, this is Zina, she's from Britain, she's from London. There's this like uh, exoticized image. Again, I don't want to link it back to the colonial legacy, but when your master was the white European, you, you idealize this pinnacle of enlightenment, or so you see it that way. But you're right, Islamophobia is rampant, and my mother is in London at the moment, and she wears a headscarf. And last week, there was footage of a man, and as a tube, the train was approaching, he threw a woman, a Muslim woman, into it. And I spoke to my mum about this, and she said, don't worry, Zina, I'm just walking away from the platform edge. And I'm thinking, what kind of world are we living in that if Europe, which is perceived to be the only safe haven, because like someone asked earlier, we cannot, you know, we cannot rely on our Arab neighbors and, and the, whole, the whole world seems to be just crumbling and Europe seems to be the only recourse for hope. What world are we living in if Europe is having this kind of level of Islamophobia? Um, and I don't really have an answer. I don't think it's Europe closing its borders. I actually think it's changing the debate and the discourse around migrants um, and around refugees and not dehumanizing them such that Islamophobia gets tolerated. One more thing uh. about Islamophobia yeah. is that, like, yes, like Islamophobia is rising. I have just one question. Do we blame all the singers for Justin Bieber? We don't. Yeah. So you can't, you can't blame everyone for, for one person's act. That's, that's pretty brutal. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry, Fair but analogy. yeah, that's, that's all I can say. You can't blame everyone for one person. Even in the law, if, 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 it, 
if a brother did something, you cannot blame the, his sister or his mom or his dad. It's his own acts. You can't blame everyone for his acts. So. Uh, it is 7.05. We have time for one more question. But I will uh, reiterate that uh, the kind of what next take action discussion will be continuing afterwards with uh, Mohammed al-Bardan in uh, assistance in helping out uh, to lead that. Um, and the conversation also continues at facebook.com slash PRI the world. So please, one last question. Thank you. Um, I have two interrelated questions kind of about um, the media, the framing of Islam and of ISIS in the media and kind of going off of what you were saying, um, Mr. Rhodes, about the Islam of, of plurality and the Islam of Al-Andalus and the Islam that allows for multiple interpretations. Um, so a couple of months ago, uh, there was this big cover story in The Atlantic by Graham Wood called What ISIS Really Wants. And he had done this in-depth research on the ideology of ISIS and relied heavily on the work of a scholar from Princeton uh, named Bernard Haeckel, who was supposed to be the preeminent scholar on ISIS ideology. And basically what this article was arguing is that ISIS is remaining, is in fact very Islamic, um, you know, in opposition to what many modern Muslims are trying to say, that ISIS is not Islamic, ISIS is perverting Islam. What this article is saying that no, they're actually going back to the very roots of early Islam. And what this scholar was saying is that Muslims who claim otherwise are either ignorant of the requirements of their religion and their history, um, or have a cotton candy view of, of their religion. And I found this very troubling because it's, it's the kind of thing that you're used to hearing from some Fox News or Bill Maher. But when it's presented as scholarship, as academic scholarship and research, and it's in you know, a publication like The Atlantic, and it's essentially saying that like, this is actually the truest, the truest Islam. This is actually what they're doing is they're remaining true to their actual roots. And all of you modern Muslims who are trying to you know, push away from this are kind of just shying away from the reality of your, of the, of your truth. And you know, if you really want to push away from it, then you essentially have to renounce Islam altogether. That's incredibly troubling for a lot of Muslims who are working against that. So my question is, how do we push back against that kind of portrayal when it's presented as this kind of objective, academic, factual, researched um, truth? And the second thing was, um, Yesterday, I believe there was an, an interview published with an ISIS defector who was saying, you know, they're asking why do people continue to join ISIS? And the main reason um, that he, you know, he was saying for so many of these people it has nothing to do with religion, it has nothing to do with ideology, it's despair, it's economic despair. These people are hungry, they have, and ISIS has become a welfare state. They pay for them to rent an apartment, they pay for their spouses, they get an extra $50 for their wives, an extra $35 for each child per month, um, free health care, free you know, education. ISIS has all of, I think, over a dozen publications, immaculately well-produced you know, newspapers and magazines that they publish that kind of push this like utopian vision of, of this Islamic state that's providing welfare for people. Where's that funding coming from? How are they able to provide all of this? That, so yeah, those are kind of my two questions. So the, the first question, uh, that, that Atlantic article is pretty heavy and controversial. So um, I, 
hard to kind of like weave that into the discussion of, of refugees. Uh, let's go for the second part of the question, okay. especially given time. Uh, ISIS didn't actually rise up till like two years ago, but there was there was there were starting before even before Syria. They were they were there like there was those they were just not organized enough. The the time they rose up was uh, by the time they took uh, Iraqi cities that has oil. By the time they 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 got those uh, U.S. weapons, U.S. military weapons from Iraqi army, that's when they rose up and when they controlled the oil. So what I what I tell like the this like the simple way to look at this is is when I say Assad or the the Syrian regime is indirectly working with ISIS is through the route of oil. ISIS has the the land of oil, and there must be someone who buy that oil from them. The most two uh, governments that buy it are Iraqi and Syrian government. Iraqi government resell it to maybe Europe, America, and Syrian, Syrian government does the same thing. So their funding is coming from that oil. And they, they like, instantly they like escalated from, from being unknown to being so well known and having that much money after they controlled that land. Take that oil from them, they'll, they'll disappear. They don't have anything else. They have no ground, no ground. They have no idea. Like, they're just they got the, that oil, and that oil is going going through the, the governments and being so. It's indirectly they're helping them indirectly. Let me slightly reframe the question and just get a quick hit from everybody before we leave tonight. Um, is there hope for possibly offering some economic opportunity and displacing the kind of paths that ISIS has to get to people and offering them that kind of livelihood? Uh, I like to think so. <laughs> I like to think we wouldn't be having this discussion if there wasn't. Um, the conflict will end. All things end, but how long will that time take? How many lives will be lost and how much damage will be done is the questions, are the questions we should be asking. Um, Assad only controls about 30% of the country. ISIS controls a lot. And we're, we haven't mentioned Iraq in this conversation, but Iraq, the whole of the north of Iraq is, is gone. So um, we're not just dealing with the Syrian problem here, we're dealing with, with these two countries um, and the wider region now. Um, so yes, there is hope. There is also um, a lot of work that needs to be done and there are people willing to do it. So um, I don't really, can't give you any economic arguments, but I can give you hopeful ones. And we all have a duty because we're educated, because we're here, because we care, we have a duty to be these activists to change the narrative and eventually that when the war does end that we can empower as allies the people on the ground to form the country that they want to create. Dr. Rhodes. Um, there's a set of data with the World Bank that says that having a job and a house is not <coughs> correlatable with decreasing <coughs> terrorism, which is quite a shock to the World Bank. Uh, so much so that they won't publish it yet. Uh, in the, um, one of the driving books in the ID ISIS ideology, it's called Idarat Tawahish, the management of savagery. The management, the administration of savagery. And it describes that young people, your, your age, not my age, are more rebellious than anyone else. And those are the people to concentrate on. 
and how does ISIS plan to attract that group? By providing them with a sublime, exalted future. You, uh, and then they had a number of articles. This comes from a recent publication by Scott Atron a few days ago. He says, the attraction, as one man said, one young man said, the West told me if I had a house or a car or the right clothes that I would have meaning. And I don't have meaning. But ISIS has shown me a way that I can have meaning. So the, to just put a final capsule around it, the issue is dignity, the issue is belongingness. There are other issues, but those are the two that I think are at the top. Would you like to add to that, Douglas? Uh, well, there's a certain element where you think, let no good crisis go to waste. And uh, if Europe was smart and it wanted to shut the siphon off, it would be investing in hope in the region. It would be in Lebanon. Lebanon has 15 times more refugees per capita than Sweden, which is the most dense refugee country in Europe. Um, that's where the hopelessness is in uh, Syria itself, in Turkey, uh, with two million refugees, et cetera. So if Europe uh, would invest in hope, if the US would invest in hope uh, in that region, I think uh, there would be some. Uh, investing in hope also means, um, what do we do? Uh, in particular, what do young people do? Are you going to turn your education into an opportunity to serve? Are you learning the skills that you might need for this, this world of, uh, of displacement uh, and human rights violations? Are you gonna do something about it? Are you gonna ask your faculty and your institutions to do it? Are you gonna become politically involved? That's where the hope is. I, I often, in, in the United States in refugee resettlement, uh, people often think the US system is so clumsy. In Europe, they set up camps for refugees, then they distribute them around with, uh, with income and so forth, and there's no interaction with the population. In the United States, Refugees are resettled by volunteers, by churches and synagogues and mosques and uh, NGOs. It's a really cumbersome, difficult process. But the advantage it gives us is that refugees actually have a constituency in the United States. Uh, in 1997, Congress conflated illegal immigrants and refugees together. They passed a really horrid uh, piece of legislation that cut off refugees using this language. And the congressmen went home and they went to their churches and their churches said, what in the world are you doing? We have been sponsoring refugees for 35 years. We know how important that action has been to us, to rebuilding our communities, to learning about the world. My hope is that that, uh, that, that constituency is still there, but you have to help mobilize it. Uh, but use it, identify it, use it, um, and push back. So yeah, there's hope. Just get organized. Um, because of time, we're going to leave it there. Uh, and it's also a great segue to the, uh, the next meeting on next steps, taking action, that uh, Mohammed Albardan is going to be a big okay, part can, of that. Can. OK, Maria. I. Maria. Maria, one more, yes, one more comment yes. from you. I was going to yes, draw the line yes. there, but please. Yes, sorry, sorry, just a few. 
I have heard that uh, only one name was of the uh, the criminals who have done all the um, terrorist issue in Paris were uh, were uh, from Brussels. In fact, no one till now is a refugee. We have four names. We have two French names and two uh, Bel uh, Belgian names. So it's a very important issue to understand that ISIS is about the nihilism and it's about the cut between uh, Western uh, state and their own youth who are issued from immigration. So we have to ask the right question when, when we want to understand the situation. The Syrian was where the first victims and they continue to, to, do, uh, to be. Uh, the women in the video say a very important thing about when we want to uh, to uh, to support Syria and try to understand the whole story. And for me, it will be really my my hope from the people who are staying with us today is try to understand the whole story, understanding the roots, and stand with uh, the Syrian people. So I will ask. Uh, people, if they, they are interested, to join the Syrian Causes for Liberty and Justice, to join our campaigns uh, of Planet Syria. It's a campaign launched by 100 civil society, Syrian civil society, asking for uh, starting peace negotiation and ending bombs in Syria. So it will be that. Thank you. So Thank the you. meeting uh, on next steps and taking action will be held right afterwards uh, in uh, Weir Town Hall. I'm sure everybody knows what that is. I don't. I want to thank uh, Wire, sorry, Wire Town Hall. I want to thank uh, Maria Alabde in Paris, Fouad Paris, Zena Aga, Kurt Rhodes, and Douglas Johnson. And thank you all for coming out tonight for your incisive questions. Thank you, thank you very much. Great stuff.